This is Leaving Laodicea, the online podcast of Steve McCraney. I'm glad you're here. Stay tuned, because we've got some exciting things in store for you. Hang tight. You can't handle the truth. Now listen, I need to have kind of a personal moment with you first before I, I uh, share today's message. Uh, as you know, um, my calling is to be a pastor. Um, I'm more of a, a, a teacher. And uh, as we have done from the very beginning, even when I first was called into the ministry, I preach expositorily. We pick a, pick a book of the Bible, Ephesians, pick a book of the Bible, John, for example, on Tuesday, and we begin John 1, 1, and kind of go all the way through and just see where the Lord takes us through that. Um, sometimes we take short detours. Sometimes we take longer detours. But the idea is to kind of work our way through a book of the Bible so that we can kind of understand everything God wants us to show us. Uh, last week we picked back up in Matthew chapter 5 after setting it aside since October because it just seemed like a prudent thing to do, but it wasn't. Uh, that was, um, I really felt the Holy Spirit telling me this week that we're really not finished with him. We're not finished talking about him and some of the things that he wants us to, sh- to show us. And so Today and then uh, next week we're going to, well, I'll tell you what we're going to be doing next week towards the end of the, end of the message. But today what I want us to do is, is, I really would love this to be kind of a watershed moment for our church. Uh, there's going to be some changes that are going to be taking place, especially from me as the pastor here and the way that, uh, that I conduct ministry and the way that, that I really think the Lord wants us to move We've been talking about for several months about spiritual gifts. We've been talking about who the Holy Spirit is. We've been trying to, to tear through the, the poor theology on both sides of the continuation uh, issue about whether God is God today or whether God was fully God only back then, whether the Holy Spirit acts today like he always did, or whether the Holy Spirit only acted back then that way. But now, since we have the completed canon, the Word of God, he acts differently. And, and I'm hoping that we've kind of gone along with this together to at least you're open to the idea that you have spiritual gifts. Because the scripture clearly says that, that he gives us these gifts according to his good pleasure because this is the way he wants to distribute them in the church. And in, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and again, I shared this verse with you at least six weeks in a row, that these spiritual gifts are the manifestation or the expression of God himself. How does God reveal himself to the world today? Through you. And through his word. But people don't hear his word unless somebody tells them about it. How how does God prove himself to be the creator of the universe and who he says he is? Because of book knowledge? No, it's, it's because of the Holy Spirit who resides in us. Why are you different than anybody else? Is it because you have a higher moral code? Because you're kind of holding on by sheer will and determination to some sort of ethical standard? Or is it the fact that God has come into you in the person of the Holy Spirit and changed you from the inside out? Now with me and some of you, that change sometimes comes in spurts. Would you not agree? There's, a, there's an immediate change because we're way down in the abyss and all of a sudden, wow, this is fantastic. And then we get to a point where we feel kind of comfortable. And then all of a sudden, we don't really need the change anymore because the next amount of change is painful. And then we get tired of living in our apathy. We recommit our life to the Lord. We ask him to change our hearts. And we have another spurt of change. And then another spurt of change, maybe then a valley, maybe then taking a couple steps back. So our spiritual life becomes like this. And in church, we foster that. I mean, we literally foster 
lukewarm spirituality. We don't want anybody being super spiritual because it makes everybody else feel uncomfortable. Does it not? Everybody. And when somebody loves Jesus more than you do, we have a tendency of calling them a fanatic. Oh, that person's just out of their mind. They're acting really loopy and goofy. Well, how are they supposed to act? Like you? Like me? Just okay. Kind of okay. Haven't really got victory over my besetting sins, but I hold on to this dream that somehow God is going to make things better. I mean, and we, we just we kind of slide back into that. And the church has a vested interest to kind of just limp along towards glory. And I don't really think that's how God intended us to be. Do you? So I want to, just, I want to share some truth with you today. And I want you, to, I want you to just open up your mind and your heart and your spirit to the fact that maybe, just maybe, there's more to Christ than you've experienced. And maybe the 10 in your spiritual life assuming you're not there now, but the 10 way back when in your spiritual life, that maybe that's just the 10 for you. And to where Christ wants you to be is a thousand or 10,000 or a million. A long time ago, I saw, I saw Bill Hybels do a, um, uh, a kind of a visual teaching. It was really great. He had this ladder and uh, they had these rungs on the ladder and, and he wanted to compare people's spirituality. And so he took Adolf Hitler and had, had his name and he Put him on one of the rungs way down low at the bottom. We'd all agree with that, right? Boom. And then he took Billy Graham. And he said, now where would I put Billy Graham on this ladder? You know, if Christ is at the top, everybody would say, oh, wait, no, no, no. The difference between Billy Graham and Adolf Hitler is about this much. And Christ is off the scale. And you and I are in Christ. You know, we're in, we can't judge each other by each other. We have to look at our lives according to the standard that he's laid out for us. We've been talking about what life means to live in his kingdom, which is the whole point of the Sermon on the Mountain. And in his kingdom, there are certain entities. There are certain truths and realities that sometimes we struggle with. One is church. What in the world is church? Well, it's a building, it's a denomination, it's something that we do. It's, they have different names. They, they used to define their, churches used to define themselves by their doctrine. First, apostolic, reformed, whatever. Baptist church, a Presbyterian church, a Methodist church. Now they've kind of gotten away from that because doctrine is not that important anymore. And they just come up with kind of cool names. The river, you know, the path or something of that nature. But, but what is a church? I mean, we're part of one, are we not? We're part of this church, which is a local assembly, which we can voluntarily come or not come. We're part of a universal church, of course, that Christ implanted us in when he gave us his Holy Spirit. I mean, what, what is church? And what is the Holy Spirit? Is it some sort of Pentecostal, mystical kind of thing that makes everybody else feel uncomfortable? Is it a power that emanates from God? Or is it, and we talked about that on Tuesday, or is it actually God himself? How do we know who the Holy Spirit is and what does the Holy Spirit seem like? And, and we've dealt with this from the John 14 passage when Jesus says that I will send you another, just like me, helper, because I'm going to go up to the Father. And that other one that he's sending is just like him. If you want to know what the Holy Spirit is like, the Holy Spirit is like Christ. You know what Christ is like? The Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. It's all one. What about these gifts? Now, we've spent a couple months looking at the most controversial of the gifts, but there's actually 28 of them in Scripture, and some of them we we freely accept. Giving, helps, administration. I can learn that in school. But the other ones, they seem really strange. Word of knowledge, gifts of healings, tongues, interpretation of tongues. But we don't even want to go there because that makes us one of those people. What about the gifts? Do you know what gift he's given you? or gifting he's given you? Do you exercise that gift? Does he move in you with that gift? And if not, why? Are we afraid? Are we 
It's just, well, there's really just no place for God to use his gifting in me. Really? Why do you think he created you? Why do you think he placed you in his church? Why did he put his spirit in you and give you gifts of the spirit, not gifts of Steve or gifts of Tim or gifts of Debbie, but gifts of the spirit, if not to exercise those gifts, as it says in in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, as an expression and a manifestation of who he is. What are his expectations? When he saved you and he saved me, what did he expect us to do? Just live a Christian life in this world? Make our money in a moral way? Raise our kids in a moral way? And go to church and and pass out bulletins and maybe go on an occasional mission trip and tithe and, and teach a Sunday school class and get old and then die? I mean, is isn't there any is there more to it than that? I mean, is that it? That we just kind of live our own life with this haze of Christianity on it? Or could he possibly have a different expectation, not only on our lives, but in the church in general? When we come to worship, be honest with yourself. When we come to worship, do we just sing songs? Sometimes we sing, sometimes we don't sing. Guys, sometimes I really hate standing. Four songs are okay, five songs wear me out, so I'll go ahead and and stand and and we'll sing, but I don't really like the song. I don't like the music. I don't like how loud it is. It's too soft. I can hear myself. I don't know the words. I don't like my voice. Is that what we do? You know, in in larger churches and kind of the mega church um, movement that's going on today, they try to make the worship time almost like a concert. Bound, you know, big bass, bass drums and, and electric guitars and lights and flashing and all that kind of stuff. And if you go to any of these churches, you will find during the praise and worship time, they will have the lyrics like we do to the songs, but superimposed behind the lyrics is always one member of the band. Always. It's the guy singing. It's the guy playing the guitar. It's the drums. As if it's all tied up in something secular that we pay money to go see some rock band and have a really great experience and we want to duplicate that in church. Is that what spirit and truth worship is all about? If you really think about it, when we come to church, it's almost like we have a cone around us. I don't care what's going on here or here or there. I'm not, my worship is not dependent upon my wife or my children. It's, it's me, and it's, just like, it's like I'm in a zone. And the zone is just me and Christ. And me and the Lord, I'm worshiping Him. If somebody else worships, that's great. If nobody else worships, it doesn't matter. My responsibility is not to be part of a composite group. It's just me and Him. Do we do that when we come? We never did that when I was growing up. They don't teach you how to do that in seminary. They just teach you how to play pretty good music and and play contemporary songs that people enjoy. But is that spirit and truth worship? In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said that you will receive dudamas. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. This is achieving life-changing, miracle-working power. If, if Christ came here today and stood in front of us and said, please tell me how you have received and utilized the power I promised you when the Holy Spirit came upon you, what would we say? Well, I remember like 12 years ago when I was talking to somebody and I really felt your presence and I got words that... that I mean, I remembered scripture verses that I didn't even think I had memorized, and, and that, that was your power. 12 years ago? What about now? What about when you walk into the room full of lost people? Do they know who you serve? Do you remember in the book of Acts when these people were going about trying to cast out demons in the name of Jesus Christ, and the man that was possessed with the demon said... <laughs> Paul, I, or Jesus, I know, and Paul, I've heard of, but who are you? And beat the dude bloody. Do you remember that? I mean, where is the power that is promised to us? Scripture talks about we're praying always with all prayer and supplication. But praying in the Spirit, do we even know what that means? To pray in the Holy Spirit, to pray with the aid of the Holy Spirit, or, or do we just kind of do our our Ritualistic prayers always start like this. Uh, <clears throat> God can always clear my voice because God can't understand me. All right? 
No, it's for your benefit. It's not for my benefit. I want to make or his benefit. I want to make sure everything goes okay. Uh, <clears throat> dear Heavenly Father, um, and then these colloquial phrases keep coming. I mean, when I was a kid back during the Vietnam War, phrases were always the same in the Baptist church. Bring our boys home from Vietnam. Do you remember that? Maybe it's just my age. Bless the gift and the giver. Lead, guide, and direct us. And we just throw these things out because they sound prayer-ish. But are we connecting? Is this, is this the kind of prayer and supplication it talks about in the scripture that you and I are empowered to do? And if we even experience this kind of prayer privately, do we dare pray like that in church where it may not be acceptable to the church norm? How about these verses? Jesus, most assuredly I say to you, to me, he who believes in me. Anybody here want to raise your hand that says you believe in Christ? You know Christ. Christ is your Lord and Savior. Verse applies to you. He who believes in me, the works that I do, he will also do. And it gets better. And greater works than he will do. Why? Because I go to my Father. What happened when Jesus went to the Father? He sent us the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit now resides with us. The scripture says that the works that I do, and what works did you do, Jesus? I taught and I performed miracles and I changed lives and, and I turned the world upside down. And greater works, it says, you'll do than I do because I'm going to go to the Father and send you me who will reside in you forever. Does that apply to us today? Or can we somehow theologically kick that out because it makes us feel uncomfortable. How about this one? This doxology. Now to him who is able to do what? What are you able to do, Christ? Exceedingly, abundantly above all that we ask or think. It takes a certain element of faith to take a prayer request or just faith in general and verbalize it. I can believe something here and think it's going to happen here, but I, I don't want to necessarily share it with somebody because they're going to think I'm crazy. So it takes an element of faith to ask. It even takes less faith or more faith, really, to think that. Can it possibly happen? And it says here that Christ is able to do beyond what we can possibly imagine, what we could think on our best day or even ask. How? How is Christ able to do that? According to the power that works where? In us. It's not out there. It's in us. What is that power that works in us? It's the Holy Spirit. It's God himself living in us. To him be the glory where? In the church. In the church and in, in our local congregations, in the universal uh, church, to Jesus Christ forever, to all generations forever and ever. Amen. It's, it's not an early church thing. It's to all generations. It's forever. The power that works in us is the Holy Spirit that turns us into dwelling places of God himself. We are the church. We come together as the church, but we are the church. And it says here that he's able to do beyond what we can possibly imagine. Sound like a church experience? Not mine. Not even here. I mean, we went through great lengths when we started this church to try to create a place where people could grow spiritually without all the things in our culture that hold you back church fights and church arguments and, and stuff of that nature. We tried, still are, trying to, to forge a body where, where people come together and they're truly friends. They're not just Sunday morning friends. They're friends that get together during the week and they hang around each other and they take vacations with each other and we're, we, we're intertwined. You know, our kids marry your kids and your kids marry their kids and trying to, to form a body in a community and we've been We've been working at this for, for quite a while to try to, to try to have a church that's the safest place that you could possibly be to grow in the fear and admonition of the Lord. But my church experience even here hasn't been like this. Has it yours? I mean, we, we, it, it's, it's great what we do, but there's more. 
Man, there's more out there. We quote scripture verses, which is incredible. Pam, I don't know how you do this each week. I mean, I don't. It's a gift. We quote scripture verses, which is fantastic. And, you know, we share some of the things God has been moving on our hearts. But, but if we're not careful, it becomes like every other church, which becomes, a, you know, a teaching post. We come, we sing, we learn something cognitively. We learn something. We maybe have a time of reflection at the end. We fellowship a little bit, and then we go home. And we do this week after week after week and month after month after month. And I don't see a whole lot of spiritual gifts being manifest here, even in my own life. And I wonder if that's because of him or maybe it's because of me. And then I'm faced with these questions. And every one of us have asked these. How can I keep, why can't I keep my children involved in church? I mean, when they were young, they used to love to come and they loved the Lord and they prayed prayers and, and I thought they were going to be missionaries. And when they got older, maybe and moved out into the world or, or saw some other things, now this entire generation wants nothing to do with church anymore and they just kind of filter away. So what is it? Is it, is it, the, is it the power of Christ unable to keep them in or is, could it be something with us? Could it be that we've lost our relevance and don't make much sense anymore? How can we keep our children involved in church? How can we keep our children from holding on to moral values? This is the part that just breaks my heart the most. You've got these kids that commit themselves. I want to be a missionary. I want to love the Lord. I'm going to save myself till marriage until they get out there and meet other people. Bad company corrupts good characters, the word teaches. And all of a sudden, they throw it all to the wind. Why? I mean, what happened here? Is it, did I fail? Did you fail? Did Christ fail? Or were we manifesting something in church that really lost its relevance when people got a little bit older? If you've got kids and grandkids, this has happened to you. How can we make kids make godly decisions? We teach them to pray. And when they were younger, it was perfect. Now when they get old, it's, it's like they move toward into emotion. Well, I have a need and I want to satisfy a need. I know, but the scripture says, I don't care what the scripture says. What's happening here? Why can't the church, not just this church, but the church in general, why can't it make a noticeable difference in our nation, our culture, and our family? When I was growing up in January 22nd, 1973, you know, abortion on demand became the law of the land in our nation with uh, um, two Supreme Court rulings. And, you know, there was a backlash in the church about that and, and people would do life change. Do you remember life change? You know, you stand on the street corner with signs and all that kind of, whoever does those anymore? Babies just keep aborted every single day and nobody cares anymore because there's a new flavor of the week for the church and on and on and on. And, and what happened here? What happened here? When um, Gone with the Wind came out and um, um, I forgot the guy's name in it. Rhett, whoever played Rhett Butler in the movie uh, used profanity for the first time ever in Hollywood, ever. Pastors begin to say, you know, this is the demise of our, our, uh, of our youth, and you're going to find it pretty soon. Just cussing is going to be commonplace, even in your own homes. And everybody laughed at them. Well, what's happening now? What TV shows can you watch? I mean, it's shocking, is it not? And it only gets worse. Why can't the church make a noticeable difference in any of these things? What's happening here? And let's make it personal. How come we can't get victory over our own personal sins? The ones we've been struggling with for 10 years. I just have this anger issue. I just have this issue. And, I mean, come on. Come on. Is, is Christ not strong enough? Is he not powerful enough? Or is, it, or is it something else? I mean, how can we move? How can we see Jesus move in our lives like he did in the past? What's the problem? And I came to the conclusion that it's either him or it's us. I want to read you two paragraphs from a book that was written about 12 years ago. And it asked the very same question. Do you believe the church can change society? And if you truly believe it can change society and it's not, why? It says, whose fault is it anyway? It says, ah, the $1 million question in our religious who wants to be a millionaire church blame game. Again, this was written about 12 years ago. It says, the problem with him, with God, 
Is he somewhat deficient, selfish, or unfair in the giving of his gifts? Did the early church somehow have something the Lord has chosen to keep from us? Is he playing favorites? Were they back then more blessed than we are today? Did the abundant life only apply to the larger-than-life figures within the pages of Scripture, or do they also apply to those who believed in him through their word? Did they have a special power or anointing, a direct line to the Lord while we suffer with an outdated and overloaded 28.8 dial-up prayer modem? Is the the problem really with the Lord, or is it with us? Is the lack of power within the church related to the way we view Scripture or a personal lack of faith, devotion, and evangelism? Maybe our failure as a church is directly related to the times or dispensations in which we live, or maybe it's just the logical result of our years of generational apathy. Is the problem found in our pride, selfishness, greed, or our own lack of common caring? Have we as Christians, as a church, let the fruit of the seed of Christ become choked out and unfruitful by the worries of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth? Have we failed to diligently heed what Jesus warned about on the Sermon on the Mount? What's wrong with us? How can we change? And do we really want to change? I mean, if if God is who he says he is, and he's empowered the church, how can things be different? The church is not how we define it today. It's not a building or a corporate entity, a 5013C. It's not a denominational. It's not even a denomination. It's not even a movement. It's not a seminary or a university. And unfortunately, I've been guilty of kind of turning my part of the church into that, that I spend a lot of time teaching and less time applying what we're actually learning. So in my, and even in my own life, I become very knowledgeable here about the things of God, but what he wants me to know is not the things of God, but God himself. Do you remember in, Acts, in the book of Acts, they realized that Peter and John were, were just unlearned fishermen, yet they recognized they had been with Christ. And that changes it all. It's not a forum. Church is not a conference, and it's definitely not an event that we come to to have some sort of surprising esoteric experience. And it's not a spectator sport. I mean, we do that. We, we set up church buildings to look like auditoriums. So I come, I have my playbill, I had t- the, uh, the offering plate comes by, so I buy my ticket, I sit in there, and I'm entertained, or I'm exhorted, or I'm, incur- I'm going to an event. And if the event is something that moves me emotionally or spiritually or whatever, I walk out and go, fantastic. And then the organization does everything they can to raise the bar the next week to get you to come back to the event. And we get hooked on the event. And not Christ. Church should not be for the faint of heart. Because it's the power of God in church. You know, when Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit and both of them dropped dead, in the middle of the sanctuary, and the young guys took them out and buried them in the backyard. Do you not think coming to church was a little scary? Man, we are serving a powerful God. We are serving a God who is angry with sinners every day. We're serving a God that, that sees, the, sees our heart. And we, we need to be holy and righteous and changes everything. Church is known as the body of Christ. It's a phrase that the Lord uses and It's also where Christ manifests himself to the world. He manifests himself through us. And on every Sunday or whenever we get together, the church should have that very manifestation of God himself expressing himself through the the world through his gifts manifested among us. Church is made up of what is known as the ecclesia, which is the called out ones. It is a supernatural spiritual organism that Christ himself promised to build. Not something that we do with all our marketing plans and stuff of that nature. I will build my church, he says. And he builds it by saving you and saving me and bringing us into his church, gifting us, equipping us, having us be able to worship him in spirit and truth, being able to understand his word, and then sends us out to make disciples for all nations with the power that he's given us. I don't know about you, but... I've been a member of the church for a long time. And I'm not sure Christ is really proud of it right now. 
It is made up of called out people. But what they're called out from is the sin and degradation of the world. What we end up doing in church is bringing all the sin and degradation into the church, try to mimic the world, and then we never address those issues because we don't want to offend anybody. It's not what it's like at all. The church is universal and it's all local. It's a visible representation of Christ as revealed by the Holy Spirit who lives in each one of us. It's you and me. Which means if I started with Rebecca and went this way, Rebecca is the church. Rebecca has been given gifts. The Holy Spirit resides in her, God himself, just like he did in the temple during the 40, or the tabernacle in the 40 years in the wilderness where the Shekinah glory fell. But instead of them having to go where God is, God has gone where Rebecca is. Where Rebecca goes, God goes. Isn't that incredible? And we forget that sometimes. Because as Jesus warned, we would take Christ and his light and we put it up under a basket and hide it because we don't want to have too much God in our life out there because it's something. Same thing with Greg. God lives in Greg. So when Greg and Rebecca get together as a unit, as one flesh, I mean, it's like a worship time. We're missing everything. God, not so true. We're missing a lot of what God has for us. And he gives us gifts. We've talked about these four lists of gifts. The ones in Romans and 1 Corinthians and, well, 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4.11. And we've, all, we've looked at the 1 Corinthians 12 gifts. And I guess when I'm, when I'm going to show you these, one more time, I want to ask you how many of these are you manifesting in your life or how many of these do you expect to be manifest in a church? The answer is all of them. The Romans, gift of prophecy, of ministry. Well, I got no problem with ministry. Prophecy kind of bothers me. Teaching, yes, I love a good Bible teacher. Exhortation, please encourage me. Giving, yes, will give. Leading, you got that. I want a lot of these gifts. First one kind of bothers me. Get to this passage. Now they all bother us. Words of wisdom. Again, we've spent months going through this. Words of knowledge, gifts of faith, healings, working of miracles, prophecy, discerning of spirits, different kinds of tongues, the interpretation of tongues. What, he only gives us some gifts and not all gifts? We have apostles, prophets, teachers, miracles, gifts of healings, helps. These are gifts later on in the same chapter. Administration. I'm okay with the teacher and helps administration, but the other ones I feel uncomfortable with, so therefore I'm going to say they don't apply. And who are you and I to do that? Ephesians 4.11. We have apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, what they call the five-fold ministry. But we've grown up believing that the five-fold ministry, we're only allowed to use 60% of that today. Apostles and prophets, no more because we have the Bible. So now Jesus wants us to function on 60% of what the book of Acts functioned on 100%. Why would he do that? The church is the body of Christ. You are the body of Christ. As I go through this, I'm just going to share about four or five verses with you. I want you to I want you to try to place yourself in these passages as the body of Christ. This is Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. And he, this is God the Father, put all things under his, God the Son's, feet. He, the Father, put everything under Christ's feet and gave him, Christ, to be head over all things to the church, which is his Christ body. The church is his body. What does that mean? The word is soma. It means an organized whole made up of parts and members. We are his body. We're an organized body that is made up of parts and members, just like your human body. I, I, this is Steve. This is my body, but it's made up of my head and my hands and my feet. If you want to get even smaller than that, it's made up of blood cells and certain kinds of cells and organs. I have a liver and a pancreas and, and a heart and lungs. And you're even smaller than that. I'm nothing more than just a collection of molecules that have all been placed together in a, in a way that God has designed to make me a functioning body. If one of the parts of my body goes south and all of a sudden one of my cells starts cannibalizing itself and starts eating other cells, I have cancer. 
If my lungs decide not to work any longer and they, my left lung decides to just check out, I, I, I've, I've got some serious problems. If my heart decides not to beat anymore, which is just one part of the body, all of a sudden, I have issues. Trust me, it happened to me about four years ago. I have issues. The, the reality is that God has placed everything under his feet and has declared us to be the body of Christ, this organization made up of parts and members who each have been given gifts by God and to do it for the fullness of him who fills all in all. It's all about Christ. This is who I am and this is who you are. In Romans 12, we've, we see this again. For I say through the grace given to me that everyone, and he's writing this letter to Christians. He's writing this letter to the church in Rome, explaining to them his understanding of the gospel. So he says, for I say through the grace given to me, who is among you not to think of yourself more highly than he ought to think? Why? Because you're just a part of this larger unit here. But to think soberly or right-minded, why, as God, and this is God's action, has dealt, and dealt means to divide, to share, to distribute, to basically break up. God has taken all the individual people and he's dealt to each one a measure of faith. And a measure means that it's a metron. It means a portion, but it doesn't describe how big that portion is. God has decided to give Tim a measure of faith. He's decided to give Pam a measure of faith and Vic a measure of faith and me a measure of faith. And some of those are larger and some are smaller, but we're all part of a composite body, an organized whole made up of individual parts, and we all have gifts, gifts. For as we, the church, have many members, and this word means limbs, in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body again. This soma, this organized whole made up of parts and members in Christ and individually members of one another. I may be an arm, Grayson may be a hand, justice may be a finger or an eye or an ear. It doesn't really matter. We're all connected together universally and locally in him as part of the church. By the way, do you realize that means that your part is indispensable? That if your part, whatever it is, isn't functioning, the body's handicapped? Well, yes, but, you know, I'm not a mouth to speak great words of wisdom. I'm not an eye to see the beauty of things. I just happen to be a carotid artery or a pituitary gland, which nobody even knows where it's at. Paul talked about the parts that are less seemly are more important. You know what happens when that gets whacked out? See what I'm saying? We're all part of the body of Christ together. 1 Corinthians 10 says, a cup of blessing which we bless is not, is it not the communion, and this is koinonia, Um, of the blood of Christ, the bread in which we break. Is it not the communion of the body of Christ? So we, though many, are one bread and one soma, one body, wife. We all partake of that one bread. Christ was showing that he took his body and he broke it and he distributed it to everyone else. And everyone else had a part of Christ, but it's still part of the same loaf. All of us are together in this and we all have gifts. And if one member or limb suffers... All the members suffer with it. If you have gout, which I happen to have, anybody in here but me have that? And Tim, if you have, if you have gout, and gout sits in the joint of your big toe, I mean, come on, your big toe, how bad can that be? Excruciating. Yeah, that's all you think about. You wake up and you can't walk. It's hard to, it's hard to move around. You, you can't even wear a shoe and you hobble everywhere that you go because if one member suffers, my whole body suffers. Man, I can't concentrate. I can't take care of my, my kids. I can't do the things that I want to do because I'm constantly in pain because of a gout attack. You know how that works. It works in our own life, but it also works in a church. If one member suffers, all the members suffers with it. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. But you are now, but you are the body, the soma of Christ and members individually. Every one of us has a part to play. Two more of these. Ephesians 4. 
And he himself gave some, not all, but some to be apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and some teachers. Why? Why did God give certain people certain gifts? It's not to glorify themselves. It's for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, ministering to other people, for the edifying of the body of Christ, for the edifying of every single one again, one of us. How long, how long will he give us apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers till we all come to a unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God? By the way, has that happened yet? No. No. And the word here for knowledge is epignosis. And this word means complete, perfect, absolutely knowing everything. Do we become a perfect man, a perfect church, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ? Hebrews 13. Let brotherly love continue. And then he describes what that brotherly love looks like. Do not... Do not forget to entertain angels. Why? For by doing so you have un, un, uh, strangers. Why? For doing so you have unwittingly entertained angels. Wow. That's kind of scary. But give me something concrete about this brotherly love. Okay. Remember the prisoners as if you were chained with them. Wow, that's the brotherly love part. And to remember them as if they were suffering just like I'm suffering. And they are suffering. And I'm supposed to be suffering with them because we're all part of one body. Those who are mistreated. Why? Since you yourself are the body. I'm sorry. You yourselves are the body also. <laughs> Just ask you a couple questions here. What does it mean to be part of the body of Christ? It's not like some church membership thing where, you know, you walk down the aisle. And I, I used to, in a Baptist church, what they used to say is somebody would come join the church and you would either come by profession of faith, by statement, or by letter. Do you remember that stuff? By letter. Letter means that I would come from some other Baptist church and I always thought, and I was really disappointed when I found out this wasn't true, that I always thought when you got saved there was some letter that if you're older now became parchment. You know, that says, yes, you're, you're, like, you're like your certificate of being saved. And they kept them in a vault in these churches. So that when I joined another church, that they would take this sacred letter out like a scroll and send it to my current pastor. So he would say, yes, it's, we have your letter here of fine standing. And it's not, none of that, it's kind of a joke. It never, never takes place. But you come by statement or by faith or by letter. They send you through a, a new members class so that you can learn all about them. Here's the stuff we do. Here's the stuff we believe. You've got to be part of us. You have to help us in our ministry and all that kind of stuff. And it, it's more than that to be part of the body of Christ. You know what? God has saved me and he's equipped me with the various gifts and he's led me here. And if you will have me, I'd like to join myself and the Holy Spirit who lives in me and the gifts that I have to your congregation. Because obviously you must have a need or God wouldn't lead me here. Nowhere in scripture does it say, well, I want to join your church so I can sit in the back and just listen and do nothing like a spectator sport. Just listen. Well, that was good. I really appreciated that. Hadn't learned that before. Wow, that's fantastic. What's, what's, uh, what's next week? Not that way at all. We're a body of Christ designed for ministry. I started thinking about what this whole body of Christ thing means and why he used that phrase. And I want you to, I want you to think about this. Christ is up in heaven. Christ is part of the Godhead that is the one that sustains the world and holds the world together according to Ephesians chapter 1. He was the one that created all worlds according to John chapter 1. But he decided to come down and try to relate in a way that you and I could understand him. So Jesus came down and using Mary's uh, womb as kind of a changing chamber, he basically clothed himself with flesh. And so he came down in a physical body to be able to minister to physical people in a way they would understand. The New Testament is full of that. People were hungry, he multiplied loaves and fishes. People were uh, tormented by terrible diseases, he healed lepers. He, he or cleansed lepers, he healed lame people. He brought sight back to eyes that had long since lost the ability to see. There were people who were caught in the throes of sin 
getting ready to be punished for that. And he goes up to this woman caught in the act of adultery and tells her, I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. Do you remember? I mean, he modeled himself in a body, in a human body. He modeled himself like you and I. And he left us his example. And then he calls us the body of Christ. We're made up of people in the same flesh that he has. We're made up of people with the same spirit that he has. And we've been told the greater things than he did, we will do because he has come and inhabited us with himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. And that's what being part of a church and being a Christian is all about, to reach out and to minister to others with the body of Christ, which means your body too. Rather than building up the walls and closing the doors and wanting to keep all the dirty people out, it it doesn't work that way. One of the bylines on our um, church website is this. Church life as it was meant to be. Kind of arrogant, don't you think? Especially realized that this week as I started looking at how church life is and how our church life should be. If you take the New Testament, you'll find it. um, It's kind of divided up into segments. Uh, If I wanted to know what church life was supposed to be about, I don't find that in the book of Ezekiel. I find it in the Gospels and especially in the book of uh, Acts and then, of course, in the Epistles. As a matter of fact, um, the, uh, the first part, the origins and the growth of the Christian movement of the Christian church is found in the gospel and the Acts and make up 50%, 56% of the New Testament. 56% of everything the Lord wanted us to know is found about the origins and the growth of this Christian church and Christian movement, the promises that he said, and the gospel in the book of Acts. The gospel deals with the origin and the base of that. The, the book of Acts talks about the explosive growth that takes place. We then have... The epistles, and the epistles basically tell us how to nurture existing Christians. People that are already Christians, here's how we're supposed to function. Here's what we're supposed to do. Here are the offices of the church. Here's how a woman is supposed to love her husband and a man is supposed to love his wife. This is how we're supposed to raise our kids. This is how we live the Christian life. That makes up 38% of the New Testament. And then, of course, we have the Revelation, which is something totally separate, but only makes up 6%. I mean, he sits here and he explains to us and 94% of the New Testament deals with church. It deals with us, how we're supposed to function in the body of Christ. Now, I want you to watch this. I'm going to go through this pretty fast, but I want you to just get a flavor for this because we're going to talk more about this next week. But I want you to show, show you what God did in the early church and he did it in a miraculous way to show us, I believe, how he wants church to be. Just look at the church growth. Originally, there was only 120 of them. That's it. We find that in Acts chapter 1. All of a sudden, after one sermon, after the Holy Spirit came, 3,000 people came to faith at Pentecost. Next, we find out that people were being added to the church daily. Gosh, wouldn't it be incredible to see that happen? I've never been to a church where that happens. It hasn't happened here. Then there are now numbered 5,000 men plus women and children. I mean, we're talking maybe what? 10, 15,000 people in the church? Don't even know. And this is by Acts chapter 4. In the middle of a hostile environment in Jerusalem. From that we find out that it says that multitudes are now being saved by Acts chapter 5. And again, it goes from addition to now multiplying the number of believers in Acts chapter 6. They don't even bother telling us how many they are. They just said they're just multiplying and multiplying and multiplying. Religious leaders now, the ones that are staunch against the church by Acts chapter 6 are now being converted. Samaritans, which nobody even wanted to minister to because they were those half-breed people, they're coming to Christ in Acts chapter 12. An Ethiopian who's a foreigner is now saved in Acts chapter, I'm sorry, in Acts chapter 8. Entire towns by Acts chapter 9 are committed to Christ. And a great number of Gentiles become Christians in Acts chapter 11. It's not that many years here that's gone by. It's boom, 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 boom. These markers of, of growth in the church. A Roman proconsul believes in Acts chapter 13, large multitudes of Jews and Greeks accept the faith. In Acts chapter 14, churches increased in numbers daily by Acts chapter 16, prominent women following him in Acts chapter 17. The ruler of a synagogue became a Christian with his entire household. Acts chapter 18, the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Acts chapter 19. Gosh, would you like to live in a place like that? Wouldn't it be incredible? Every day was exciting. 
Now, let me show you why this happened. And this is the part that I think is going to arrest you. Why did all this spiritual growth take place? It's because people in the church were exercising spiritual gifts. Watch. Pentecost, 3,000 people were attracted to the miracle of tongues. They heard the gospel. They didn't see the cloven tongues of fire. That was just for the 120. But they heard the gospel preached in their own dialect. And they came together saying, what is this? Do you remember? The process of leading 5,000 men to, uh, came with Peter and John healing a lame man at the temple gate. What I have, I will give to you. Silver and gold I don't have, but in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, rise and walk. When's the last time you saw that happen in a church? Believers were added when Peter's shadow in Acts chapter 5 healed some and demons were cast out. Really? Acts chapter 8, the gospel broke through to Samaritans because of the miracles that were done through Philip. Not his proclamation of the gospel, but the gospel being certified by spiritual gifts. Acts chapter 9, many believe in Joppa because Peter raised Dorcas from the dead. Do you remember? Acts chapter 13, the proconsul believed when Paul had the power encounter with Elimus the sorcerer. You'll be blind for a while because you're talking wrong about Christ. When does that happen? The word of the Lord spread through Ephesus when demons were cast out through handkerchiefs that were blessed by Paul. I don't have time to go, but they just sent these handkerchiefs out. My goodness. All of a sudden you see this explosive growth in the book of Acts and you wonder why. And it has to do with the faithful proclamation of the gospel and the use of spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts. Same gifts that you have. Same gifts that I have. Same gifts that we're absolutely terrified to use. So when are we going to start exercising the gifts in our church? Well, we do. We exercise the gift of teaching. Okay. Well, how about some of the other ones? Well, we exercise the gift of mercy. And there's some people in here that are incredible merciful and giving because um, there's a lot of people and a number of people in here that silently help support other people financially. And I think that's incredible. Well, what about prophecy? What about word of knowledge? And what about healings? And what about faith? What about prayer? I mean, it's a gift. I mean, what happens here? We don't give the Lord an opportunity to work in our midst because we're afraid of him. We're afraid of what might happen. If we actually opened it up for people exercising their spiritual gifts, some people will get it wrong. Yes, they will. Some people will, will minister in the flesh and not in the spirit. Yes, they will. Some people will maybe just try to bring glory into themselves. Yes, they will. Count on it. So because we don't want those few abuses to happen, we just decide, God, we don't want any of it ever, period, because we're satisfied with the way things are. I'm not satisfied. Are you satisfied? Do you want more from Christ? More of what he wants us to do? So beginning next Sunday, next Sunday, we're just going to start with intercessory prayer. And I'm going to ask at the end of the worship service, and we're going to do this every time we get together, if anybody would like prayer for anything. I don't care what it is. My prayers don't change anything. Your prayers don't, don't make God do something he hadn't planned on doing. But the fact of the matter is that God, for some reason, tells us, even though he knows our needs before we ask him, he still has decided that he grants our needs by asking. You notice that? By asking. So we'll ask him, does anybody need any prayer? And I don't care how many people come up, and we will pray for them. And I will pray for them, but I'm asking some of you in here to really pray about it this week. And if God has given you maybe a gift of prayer, if you feel comfortable doing that, if you can do this in the spirit and not in the flesh, my, my hope is the fact that, that Sunday people will see their lives change and people will come to the front of the church and be comfortable enough to, to share their burdens and we'll pray for them. But I can't pray for everybody. I would love someone to help pray with me. There's no pressure no peer pressure. If God is not in this, please don't come up because we don't want to make mistakes. We just want God's will to be done. And if someone has a need for healing and we pray for healing, and if they get healed, hallelujah. If they don't get healed, what's the answer? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. God is sovereign. 
Sometimes his answer is no. I'm not in control of that. It's not my call. All we do is ask. We just ask God. Line our lives up and we ask. So what we want to do is, is begin with just baby steps and moving beyond church being a spectator sport. And I hope, I hope in time everybody will get on board with this. But to allow God the opportunity to, I don't know, to maybe, to maybe move in our midst in a great way. I mean, what we normally do is we take prayer requests. And we spend more time, and it's been my whole life I've been doing this. And I don't know, maybe it's my fear. I don't know what it is. But we spend more time describing the need than we actually do praying for it. Have you ever noticed that? Hey, would you please pray for this because this is all happening. We tell this big, long story. And, and okay, will you pray for this? Just will you pray for this? Sure. God, I can't remember the person's name right now, but just bless the person that, that you know, John talked about. Okay. But I think maybe... I think maybe that it would be really great if, if Justice was praying for somebody and I'm praying for somebody and if there's five or six people that have prayer needs up here, we've got five or six people are more praying for them and interceding for them and bearing each other's burdens and just giving God an opportunity to be God without the constraints that we artificially, me too, that we artificially put on him because we want things to be done orderly and not loopy and most important, we want to feel comfortable with everything. Make sense? So next week, and I don't know how God's going to play this out, but I'm going to begin at the end of our worship service. Instead of just making announcements and taking prayer requests and closing, I'm going to ask if people have needs, they'd like to come forward. I will, I will pray for as many as I can. Having praying an intercessory prayer, uh, you don't have to be ordained to do that. You don't have to be a special person to do that. In the Old Testament time, you always had other people who interceded on the behalf of the Jews. You had the prophets who did that. You had Moses that would go in into the, you know, into the holy place and meet with the Lord and come out and intercede on the behalf. But Jesus has done away with that. Jesus says there's only one mediator between God and man, and that's him. And you have direct access to him. Everybody in here can pray in accessory, which means you're simply praying for somebody else. You're interceding on behalf of somebody else. Everyone in here can do that. I hope you're doing that in your private prayer life. That's what these prayer lists are for and stuff of that nature. But I would like, to, I would like us to begin it here publicly and just see what God does. Does it mean our worship services may run a little long if I finish at 12 and then we start praying and, and oh, God forbid, the Holy Spirit breaks out and we stay here till 2? I'm okay with that. Are you okay with that? And if not, if you have to leave, that's okay. There's no shame. But I want, I mean, I'm, I want to be 62 years old on Tuesday. And I already had a heart attack. And I'm 62 years old. And all my life, all my life, I wanted to see God move like he did, did in the book of Acts. All my life. Now, the closest I ever saw that is I went to Haiti for three weeks where people had nothing and they prayed, and the power of God was so thick, I didn't even want to leave. I mean, it was incredible. They're not as educated as I am. They don't have the Bibles that we have. The surroundings certainly weren't as nice, trust me. But the fact is, what do they have that I don't have? They had trust. They had faith. And they believed God for what he said. And I would, I would love to have that happen here, wouldn't you? So I'm just asking you. I'm asking you to pray this week. Pray for me that... Uh, that uh, I'll be listening to God and we'll do things according to the way that he wants it done. Pray for yourself um, that God, if I, I surrender my life to you and, and Lord, if you, if you impress upon me to come pray for somebody, God, give me just the strength or the courage or the will to go do that. And let's just see what God does. He may do nothing. He may do something incredible. But I want to find out, don't you? So I'm hoping today will be a defining time for our church that, uh, that we'll see God do things that we can't even imagine. And after an accessory prayer, maybe we'll learn a little bit about praying and fasting. And they're so connected. <laughs> it's so connected. We'll pray about what it means to pray in the Spirit. We'll talk about worshiping in the Spirit, which is 
different than worshiping in the flesh. Well, maybe we'll, he'll show us how to, Latin, how to learn not how to quench his spirit, or maybe he'll show us how to live beyond what we're used to living. It just seems comfortable to us and embrace him for who he is. Because I believe this verse. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, in every single one of us, to him be glory in the church, which is made up of people who the power of God works in. By Christ Jesus to this generation also, forever and ever. Amen. And like I asked you earlier, does this sound like your church experience? Mine neither. But I want you to believe that it could be. It could be. And I don't know about you, but if there's more of God than I've experienced, which I know there is, I want to pay the price and experience it. Don't you? Let me pray.